Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. There's something shifting now. The platitudes just aren't going to work. There's so much work to be done and I do feel as though at times I just cannot believe that after 10 years it's so similar. And, you know, when you hear Gillard say, I'm proud that I've made it easier for the next woman and the woman after that and the woman after that, I think that's true, but by how many inches? Hello, lovely people of podcasts. Welcome to the show. You're with Catherine Murphy, the host, and I'm political editor of Guardian Australia. And I'm delighted to have with me this week Tosca Luby, who is a producer and a director with Northern Pictures and, uh, for the purposes of this conversation, is the director of the new documentary Strong Female Lead, which is available, I think, on SBS streaming services. And I think it went to air on Sunday, Tosca, right? Went to air on Sunday, so it's already on demand. Yes, on demand. Thank you. Yes. So uh, anyway, I've seen the documentary. Uh, It's amazing. Uh, I I know a lot of people listening to the pod will have a a similar view of that. Uh, But let's sort of start at the beginning. Why don't we start by you telling the listeners a little bit about uh, what you've done previously and how that path leads you to making a documentary about the Gillard years. Well, yeah, probably like most documentarians, it's a pretty weird kind of path that I've taken to make a political documentary, if you call it a political documentary. Um, I actually started out in natural history television. So I started out at the ABC Natural History Unit And we made all sorts of um, biopics about Australia and about about natural history. And from there I went on, I moved over to WA where the ABC didn't have a kind of outfit that I could work with, so I became a freelancer and then did all sorts of independent documentaries about subjects as diverse as mesothelioma, aged care, the poaching of lions and tigers, um, uh, child abduction. Uh, so, yeah, that's what documentary tends to do. You sort of become a, an expert in some field for a year and then you move on to something completely different. Um, and then uh, actually about six years ago I started at Northern Pictures and we do a lot of interesting stuff at Northern Pictures, which is why I've stayed for so long. So we do Love on the Spectrum, which I know a lot of people love. Um, And Mm -hmm. then uh, I actually did a big natural history series there um, a few years ago called Magical Land of Oz, which was another, it was 18 years since we'd done a a sort of 
continent-wide series. So that was an exciting project. And then um, last year we did See What You Made Me Do, which is a series about domestic abuse that was also, um, that went out on SBS and uh, presented by Jess Hill. So, yeah, strange path, but the last couple of years I've certainly been uh, delving into issues to do with women and um, yeah. and the Gillard Project actually came out of us being shut down in the last um, lockdown. Suddenly we had to stop all filming on See What You Made Me Do and for a long mm-hmm. time the editor of this project, Rachel Grierson Johns and I, had fantasised about making a purely archival film about the Gillard years and as soon as we got locked down, we said, hey, rather than, yeah, <laughs> either everyone becomes unemployed or we start this project. So SBS actually kind of bounced in very quickly and backed it. And that's what we did. We moved everything home and we had an archivist in her house, a, an assistant editor in his house, the, the, the editor in hers and myself, and we just pass everything between us once a week and work through what turned out to be as you can imagine, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of hours of archive. So was because I was going to ask you about the archival method, right, because, uh, you know, often in documentaries it's a mix of archives and people talking to camera and people having retrospective feelings about things, right? One of the kind of uh, powerful elements in the documentary is that it is literally live live action events uh, and no one's given the opportunity to, you know, sort of (laughs) spiff up what they might have said, right, in retrospect. So it's it's sort of like a a time capsule and I mean that in the best sense. So but was the archival method a function of lockdown or is that what you wanted to do even uh, even if the country hadn't gone into lockdown? No, that was absolutely what we wanted to do from the start. So it was, I mean, the film is has been compared to the final quarter and that is no accident. When that came out, it said to us, yes, this can be done. We can get someone to back this. So we were thinking it might be hard to get a broadcaster on board, as it so often is, especially on a project that's not following a formula that they're used to. And so after final quarter came out, um, I thought, okay, there's our template, there's evidence that it, it, it can work. And that film, of course, was made by Ian Darling, who was able to sort of support it himself. So, you know, it just goes to show that I kind of needed that to happen before I could even get a broadcaster mm. onto it. Mm. And and so we we knew that the material was out there. It was then still a job of convincing everybody that we had a film in it. So people would say to me, look, I know that there were those signs at the Carbon Rally and I know that people said some nasty things, but I don't know that you've got a whole film Mm. here. (laughs) You've got a whole film, yes. (laughs) Yeah. Before we recorded, I said to Tosca when when we had a chat on the phone, it's, it's 
one of the powerful things about the, this presentation of those facts of the Gillard era is that uh, it's very compressed. It removes uh, all of the other daily distractions of that political period, and and there were a lot of them. <laughs> and it just uh, it compresses and focuses in on this one important theme of the Gillard prime ministership, and that's sort of that gives it this power. Um, I'm interested. Was was Julia Gillard involved at any point in the project? Did you did you tell her you were going to make this documentary? If so, how did she react? Uh, I'm interested in that. Yeah. So I was upfront from the very beginning because initially I thought I kind of needed her to be involved. As it turned out, we actually didn't, and it was probably better that mm. she wasn't for everybody's yeah. sake. I think. Um, and when I say she wasn't, what she did do was supply us with anything that we needed. So she allowed me to speak very candidly to anybody I asked to speak to and didn't hold back on anybody. So everybody who worked with her was generally very loyal to her. In fact, someone said to me, once you've worked for Julia Gillard, you will always yeah. work for yeah. her. And so they always went to her first and asked for permission and she always gave it. So I had some great conversations to begin with, which helped me work out what we would chase archivally. And a lot of conversations, you know, along the lines of tell me about the moments that you remember that we may not know about. Tell me about things that happened uh, that may not have been caught on camera that I might be able to find through some other form of media or through you know, we we initially it was a very broad basket that we were going after because I wasn't sure what we would incorporate. You know, as it turned out, tweets became very helpful and, you know, it was kind of that early stage of social media. So it was kind of trying to work out what people were using back then and where people were communicating. And that was part of the archival process as well to work out where everything was being said and 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 what direction we should go in. Yeah, it's interesting that as a scaffolding methodology because you do literally, as you said, you would just have such a wealth of content uh, and then you've got to plot a storyline, you've got to plot a narrative arc through that wealth of content. So it's interesting to sort of uh, uh, get people's because uh, I, I know exactly what you mean about staff from that period and, and look, political staff are, are, are like that generally, um, but it's sort of like in a way they're good anchor points because what they viscerally remember from those periods would be helpful to you in terms of constructing a narrative, I imagine. Um, so what's the, what's the reaction to it been like? It's been pretty amazing. Um, you know, whenever you make a film, you're never sure whether people are going to be into it. I mean, if you knew that, you'd be the most competent creator on the planet because you just really never know. But we had an inkling that people would be really struck by this. We certainly were. Even now I get upset by it, even after watching it so many times. And... The reaction has been really interesting in that the outpouring of love for Gillard. Then the other really interesting thing that's happened is a lot of um, LNP supporters who've come out and said, I'm so appalled and ashamed about my own party. 
Um, that's been a surprise to me. I didn't think that that would happen. It's also been interesting that, for example, Julia Banks has come out very vocally, but no one from Labor has, mm. including no women. I know that Kate Ellis has commented on it, but otherwise it's a an interesting silence. Yeah, it is an interesting silence. What about um, in terms of that assembly of facts you, you spoke before about staff recollections as one means of plotting a, a storyline. I mean, I think you started as a journalist, didn't you? I think that's your background and it's obviously mine. Uh, any journalist can tell you that you can assemble the same facts in five different ways and have five different stories. In fact, some diametrically opposed to uh, the other. I know that sounds a strange concept for folks listening, but that's you you can assemble so many different stories from the same facts. What's you know what what's applied is a point of view that 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 sort of steers a a kind of a coherence through the interpretation of those facts. So when you started, did you have a very strong, notwithstanding your process of how to edit down the material, did you have a very strong story in your own mind that you wanted to tell through this documentary? I knew that it had to travel chronologically, which was the only spine that we had. So usually in a any project that I would do, I create all the footage that I want to work with. And before I do that, I've got a really clear script and sense of story. And so you go out and you collect everything you need to create that. This was the opposite. I knew that somewhere out there in the ether there was all this material that if you could come bring it all together and sieve through such a mass, there was a story in there for you somewhere. <laughs> so to begin with, it was really intimidating. I kind of thought, I just don't know where to start. And this amazing editor who did this, and these films are editors' yeah. films, you need an incredibly competent editor and Rachel Griss and Johns is the best. And she sort of said to me, right, we are starting with carbon tax. And I was like, okay, okay. But I had already plotted out all the chapters that I thought would hold the story for us. So I knew that there were moments through the three years of her career that we would build our narrative around. And we did, but a lot of those dropped out. And, and actually initially we made a trailer that was pretty easy because it was all just those really shocking moments like, kick her to death and, um, you know, a lot of those moments, the moments that people would be more familiar with, you know, did she go down to the chemist and buy her own tampons? Um, easy to string all those things together but not easy to string it together over 70 minutes where you actually mm. tell a story and there's a story arc. And actually if you're to follow what is a workable story arc, we would finish at the end of the misogyny mm. speech because that's where there's a victory, you know, and people can take that with them. And so it was very hard to continue the film beyond that point and bring your audience back down again. And actually I've noticed in some of the tweets some people have said I had to stop after the misogyny <laughs> speech and just turn it yeah. off for a minute so I could just just celebrate with her for a moment knowing that it was all going to go horribly wrong again. An observation before I ask you this question. What was striking to me back on that compression point and the removal of 
uh, debris and distraction uh, was Julia Gillard's emotion. Because at the time reporting that, uh, she was such a stoic figure. There were there were so sort of few points where the frustration or the the burden she was carrying in terms of uh, all, all of the crass sexism, right? That was not that was largely invisible because she is a very stoic character, but her emotion is very much at the at the fore in this in this documentary, which was just really interesting, actually, just that you could that was so much more visible in compressed form. So we've talked a little bit about the reaction to it, about you know uh, people people needing that break at the end of the misogyny speech before ponying up for the end. Uh, you know what what's been the aftermath in terms of the feedback you've had as a filmmaker. But I guess what I'm interested in is, uh, do you think that uh, that somehow ten years on, or a bit over ten years on from those events, that now um, sort of post me to that we are in a different place as a country, that we can have a, a more, I mean, mature is a silly word, but that we can have a more um, reasoned conversation about those 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 dynamics that she battled her whole prime ministership because it's not like that sexism wasn't mentioned at the time she was the prime minister it wasn't like everyone failed to notice it but now we are having a quite different conversation about it than we had while those events were playing out so why do you think that is well the day after it went out on Sunday, on Monday, I did a panel session with Yasmin Poole and Chanel Contos mm-hmm. and Jess Scully. And listening to those young women, I thought, you're just not going to accept the platitudes. You, you're just not going to wear them. I mean, I were, they knocked my socks off, as Grace Tame does. And I think these voices are really, really, really powerful and it gives me a whole lot of hope that, yes, there's something shifting now. The platitudes just aren't going to work. There's something that's 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 changing. Mm. Yeah, and that, that, I think that's part of it. I think the, there are a generation of advocates now uh, who have no interest in being co-opted by praise or by by institutions or by awards or by, you know, they are just going to, if someone hands them the microphone, they will just speak their truth and that, that genuinely is a difference. But I don't know, is it more than that? I don't know, I don't know. Look, I th- yeah, of course it's more than that and I, and I don't mean to simplify it and say that, you know, therefore we're just on the up and up now and uh, all will be well. I, I, the patriarchy is fixed. Yes. Exactly. Done. Job done. Sorted. Yeah. I, I think, um, I mean, it was your pale, male and stale that, you know, that, that all lingers obviously and there's so much work to be done and I do feel as though at times I just cannot believe that after 10 years it's so similar and sometimes I think when 
you know, when you hear Gillard say, I'm proud that I've made it easier for the next woman and the woman after that and the woman after that, I think that's true, but by how many inches? Yeah, exactly. By how many inches? It's sort of the great imponderable, isn't it? By how many inches? What do you reckon? How many inches? (laughs) (laughs) 2.3. You know, I just... I mean, even Jacinda Ardern, she's number three over in New Zealand and the first thing they ask her is what happens are you can have a baby mm-hmm. and, you know, and, and, but I do think it's very different over there and, and, and so I can see that it can be different here and it has to be. But uh, I know that Gillard's issue with this film was I don't want people to listen to my story and, be, and women and girls to be put off. She was really concerned that that's what this documentary would do and I know she remains concerned about that and she did make a statement in response to the film to say look we have to take the historical record and it's a really important tool but please you know imploring don't be put off Mm. it's an incredibly satisfying thing to go into a political career and I like to think that the ground there is more of this groundwork to say women are watching other women's backs. And I do just believe that the more women we get in there, and there are more than there was 10 years ago, even though the rest of the world is racing ahead of us in terms of female participation in parliament, I do believe that that's making a difference. Mm. But, I mean, you you know more about that than I do. Well, well, this, is, this might be a nice transition. I did say to Tosca when we were setting up this conversation for you guys that uh, she was very welcome to ask any questions uh, of me uh, because obviously uh, Tosca's made a, a really impactful film about this period. I was here the whole time. I, you know, I bore witness to this every day. I reported, uh, I reported on this period intensively. Uh, I have reflected on my own practice during this period uh, and I've said publicly uh, I didn't do enough to call out this stuff uh, and uh, the reasons the reasons why are actually complex. <laughs> the, the main reason, as I've said publicly in the past, is that I just actually didn't want to believe it was happening uh, and leaning into that narrative uh, that that the Australia's first female prime minister would be subjected to extraordinary, un, just unbelievable sexism. That that would be the response. Like for a woman of my generation, that information was was just too painful to grapple with, and uh, and I think we were all frozen by it. I think uh, Gillard herself was. Uh, I think a number of her colleagues around her who are women of a similar generation to me all didn't know what to do. It was sort of like almost by leaning into it too hard you'd validate it and and she she didn't herself uh, lean into that uh, until the misogyny speech, really, forcefully. So... Anyway, uh, that's uh, that's a you know that's a speech from me. Thanks very much. But uh, what do what do you want to ask me about that period? Well, actually, I'd like to ask you specifically about the Australia Day event mm-hmm. that happened during her leadership that I know that you wrote about, and that was a scene that we had in the film that we ended up dropping. But I thought it was a really interesting event. 
And I know that you, the way that you reported on it, it was a time when you were saying, what is this? Is this that she was so um, incapable of getting anything right? Mm. I, I shouldn't try and paraphrase you, actually. You should paraphrase yourself. No, no, no. But, but I know that that, that that was an example of a time that you were asking what this was. Mm. And so I'd be really interested to know what your <laughs> reflections were on that. Oh, well, yeah, well, well we, we did, like throughout, we did ask what this was. Uh, it was, you know, it wasn't like you could miss it, uh, the framing. It wasn't, it wasn't subtle or... Or secret, uh, but the difficulty of reporting this time and this prime ministership was uh, that you know it was a time of great tumult in the sense of uh, you Tosca mentioned sort of social media was still a relatively new thing. This was the first minority parliament we had seen since the Second World War. Uh, literally that government was engaged in a daily struggle to, uh, you know, maintain confidence on the floor of the House. It was a government with a huge agenda, uh, you know, some of which held over from the first Rudd term where, where ideas hadn't been implemented. So there was this incredibly compressed period of legislating that uh, that, that government engaged in because... Julia Gillard was such a uh, an effective manager of of an agenda and a program. Uh, so it was sort of uh, you know we were there were so many elements. That's why I sort of uh, in my response to the film I, I talk about the uh, you know the benefit <laughs> of you sweeping the landscape clean of all of the of all of the. Uh, complexities of that period. It doesn't doesn't make the history untrue. Uh, it sort of actually exposes it. it. It gets to a truth that was obscured by the cacophony often, right? Um, so it's sort of like, you know, that government, uh, they, they made mistakes. Uh, they were in a, in a daily battle uh, for, you know, to, to maintain control uh, Tony Abbott was the well, you know, was an opposition leader who specialised in destruction uh, of of peace, of harmony, of sanity, of authority. You know, that was his whole modus operandi. And uh, and because of the the sheer uh, the the agenda was so packed. I mean, that government, my God, they 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 legislated a, a carbon price in a minority parliament. Um, they implemented the National Disability Insurance Scheme. Like what? Um, you know, like there was a whole, there was so much that they wanted to do. It's sort of like they had all that um, that sort of, uh, how to describe it, it's sort of like progressive governments at the federal level, they know it's an uphill battle to win federally. They're on the clock from the moment they walk in the door. They know it. They know it's not the natural order of things. Anyway, it was just it was an extraordinary period, and I don't use the word hyperbolically. It was it was an extraordinary period, and trying to get clarity on what it was and what was happening was was difficult. And I think, uh, and also the other, you know, the other sort of factor to bear in mind with it was not only had social media just arrived, we we were in the middle of a massive disruption 
of our own industry at that time too, where we migrated from being, you know, <laughs> filing for a newspaper once at the end of the day to filing most of this live. Most of this played out live and that was a very new phenomenon in Australian politics at that time too. So, again, I'm not saying any of this is apologia, but you ask me, you know, what was I, what was I, what was I trying to get to? I was trying to get to the truth of all of that. But, yeah, it was just such a kind of, it was such a crazy period. Anyway, what else do you want to know? Well, one thing that I could see when we went through everything was the evolution of Gillard. So you see in the film when she's first, it's just days in and they're already attacking her about her scream coat and, oh, my God, you're wearing the same earrings as you wore yesterday. And she says, oh, I didn't even think about it. And then, and and she's kind of surprised by the question, but okay, I'll just answer. And over the evolution of her three years, questions like that just start getting really irritating. Yeah. And she's she stops giggling about it and, you know, I, I mean, there's kind of a midpoint in the film, like with that Charles Woolley interview oh, where she yes. says, yes, I am in love, Charles, where I I got to the point where I thought I, I understand when Julia Gillard is wanting to say something completely different, but instead she answers politely. So that's kind of the midpoint of this evolution. And then we get to the stage where she's just not having it. Yeah. And unfortunately that is right at the end. Yeah. But I wondered if you guys were seeing that too and if it was an interesting... Oh, yeah. Yeah, well, that was sort of what I was trying to get to in this sort of evolution of all of us, uh, that it was sort of... Um, uh, look, I'm I'm not, uh, uh, as, I, as I said, hopefully, clearly, uh, you know, Julia Gillard is not to blame for uh, the failings of the mainstream media complex at that time. She is not to blame for that. Uh, but I think the difficulty was, yes, this sense of, um, as you say, uh, she thought uh, she arrived, uh, that all the sexist tropes hit immediately, Lady Macbeth, you know, uh, uh, nice girls don't carry knives, all of that sort of stuff hit from the get-go. She was, I, she was sort of unmoored by it. We who were conscious that this was not a good thing, all unmoored by it. She played the game in a way because uh, she didn't respond uh, in a way that was sort of true to her nature, if I can say it that way. Uh, it sort of added to the sense of artifice. It added to this sense of, uh, you know, the Prime Minister playing a role, which then played back into Abbott's frame about legitimacy, who is this person, is she there validly? So in a way, her own response to it fed the cycle. Now, again, I said a minute ago, I hope it was clear I'm not blaming Julia Gillard for the way she was framed because it is not her fault. That was our fault. Uh, but it did nonetheless feed this sense of is this quite as it seems? Uh, uh, you know, it, it, it just sort of fed itself, I guess. And, yeah, by the time she she sort of tumbled, well, not tumbled to it, she, she knew exactly what she was in, but the, by the time towards the end, where, as you say, she'd lost patience with it uh, and, you know, Kevin Rudd was marshalling to 
come back into government. Uh, you know, her office kind of took a more offensive approach, uh, you know, tried to step around mainstream media altogether, communicate with women more directly. Uh, by the time all of that happened, it was very late in the prime ministership. So, um, you know, I guess if we all had that time again, I mean, I, have, I haven't spoken to her about this, but I wonder if she would play it differently if she had a time again and I know I would. Yeah, she said pretty publicly, and I know that Tanya Plibersek said this just last week, they regret that they didn't just call it straight away and say, okay, we're not going to be talking about scream coats and that's sexist and I'm going to call you on it straight away. But, of course, there was this attitude that I think is is yours of, okay, I think that's just going to go away. That's just kind of the initial uh, excitement mm. of a female prime minister mm. and none of us can, you know, are quite mature enough to deal with yeah. that. And then we'll get into the... Substantive the stuff, yeah. 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 And the, but actually it just got it worse. It just got worse. And and the thing is, uh, like, uh, I'll just say this quickly, uh, the uh, obviously the, the parliamentary press gallery was criticised for not fathoming the, the cultural impact of the misogyny speech. And that's a completely fair cop because, I mean, I, I was live blogging. I was I had the coverage for, or responsibility for the live coverage, uh, and uh, and and actually, if you if you look, if you go back, there were a spectrum of views expressed about that speech. But as a general piece of commentary, it's true. Uh, we were because political po- reporters are process obsessed. We are all process-obsessed because it's like that's the nature of our business is be across all the moving parts of politics and policy, develop a throw-forward angle, push the story forward, what's the next thing? So we're trained. It's sort of like we it's like a Pavlovian response, right? We're like cats that follow little shafts of light. Like that's that's how we're trained. And on the day the misogyny speech was delivered, of course, it was one of those days where the Labor government was literally fighting for numbers on the floor of the House. There was a whole controversy around Peter Slipper. And she threw that misogyny speech in part because she absolutely meant it and she absolutely needed to say it. But also uh, the Prime Minister was, she's such a, a confident parliamentary performer and, and an absolute punisher in the best sense of the word, right? If you want to knock your opponent out, you know, don't shoot and miss, like uh, take take your opponent out. So it was, but again, we did, we, we missed the cultural impact because at that point it was yet another day's drama in the 43rd where the, the Labor government may be able to govern or not a uh, whole drama playing out with the speaker. So we're we're down the we're like four you know four furlongs down the process route while this thing's playing out, uh, and and that sort of I don't know as best as I can explain it that is the gap. That's that's why it, it wasn't like we were all stupid and we <laughs> we thought oh that was a shit speech. Although I think some people actually did think it was a shit speech. I think some people actually wrote that, which is kind of a Michelle Grattan thought it was a well, shit yeah, speech. Well, yeah, it's kind of astonishing because like it, no, it was not a shit speech. It was it was an absolute uh, sorry to be crude. It was an absolute ball terror of a speech. Uh, and and you could see that, but again, we were all fixating on what was going on behind the scenes, which is sort of terrible in one way. It's kind of like, oh my god, but it is our job 
right? So that that picture is a bit more complex than sometimes, you know, is, is sometimes commonly understood. I mean, I don't defend it. It was, you know, it was massive fail, my God. But um, but there's a reason for it. It wasn't like we just all sort of, you know, smoked the pipe in the corridor amongst ourselves, stroked our chins and came up with nonsense, although that, you know, sure, but that wasn't what happened anyway in that instance. We're on the clock. Anything yeah. else? I, there is something else I want to ask you. I There was a lot of stories that I heard that I couldn't tell because there was no footage, there was no mm-hmm. audio, uh, some really, really shocking stuff that I couldn't report on. Do you know about more stories that you can't report on either or couldn't at the time because you didn't have the evidence? In terms of the sexism or...? In terms of women through parliament at that time. Certainly, uh, shall we say, a not very healthy workplace culture, for sure, has been around for a long period of time. I I don't recall it being particularly bad during that period or, or worse than anything I've seen over the life of the building. And some of the difficulties with telling those stories, again, you know, like a theme of our conversation has been, you know, this great sense of agency that young women have developed about speaking their truths, right? Like partly, you know, some this hasn't really been reported in the past for a variety of reasons. One, as you said, veracity, can we prove something happened, you know, to to a publishable standard? Uh, and that in this country, sadly, is a very high standard. So you can't just walk around making allegations or reporting rumours or, I mean, you can't do that, right? So partly it's been issues of verification. Partly there's been a bit of a culture of, uh, you know, uh, don't, who are we to judge? Uh, and partly it's because, uh, you know, some of the people who have had terrible experiences in this ecosystem have not had the confidence or the willingness to come forward and tell those stories in a, in you know, in, in a very public way. So, but again, that's changed and we're seeing the consequences of that in the building at the moment. And, I do think some of that will be lasting as well, some of that some of that shift, so that's important. So it sort of feels like both in your sphere and in mine that, you know, you can, you can crack it open, you can crack it open and then you've just got to see, you know, whether the progress is any more than, what did you say, two and a half <laughs> inches or whatever? We've got to I see. I think, yeah, we've got to keep trying for a little bit more. Keep, yeah, exactly. And that's a good happy note to end on. So let's 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 end on that note, Tosca. I really I so appreciate the conversation. I appreciate your documentary. Uh, I think it's a really fine piece of work. Uh, I'd be interested in hearing what you guys think about it. Do track it down if you haven't seen it. If you feel trepidatious about watching it, I understand that it's it, it is it's a hard. You know, it's it's not easy viewing. It's not popcorn viewing. It's it's confrontational, but it's important. It's an important bit of history. So, you know, get in touch. Uh, Tosca's on the socials. I'm on the socials, obviously. Get in touch with us. Tell us what you think about it. Thank you very much, as always, to Miles Martignoni, who's the EP of this show. Thank you to Alison Chan, who I think is cutting it uh, this week uh, with uh, Karishma Luthria. Thank you to you guys for listening, sharing, etc. We'll be back next week.
Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.